The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So thanks for coming, everyone. As you can see, we truly need a new building. And probably most of you know, we about a year ago, we purchased the building seven blocks west of here. And many of the people in this room have been busily helping to renovate that building and will be done hopefully sometime this spring, early, mid, late spring, we're not sure yet. But if you'd like more information about that, you can check the wall in the entranceway um, on the outside wall. We have a lot of information about the building, different ways you can get involved, either volunteering or contributing to support it. And so we'll have a, hopefully, someday soon, a more spacious room for us to do our practice. So we've been um, covering the seven factors of awakening this fall. It's one of the many lists the Buddha used to help teach. And at some point, the Buddha assessed, using his own experience, his own mind, he assessed the characteristics of a, a highly balanced, clear, easeful mind. And he assessed the characteristics that are present when the mind is in this wholesome balance and is able to cut through our concepts, our ideas of things, and see more directly, perceive more directly how it is. And just to review those seven factors, mindfulness is really the ultimate balancing factor because it's mindfulness that helps us discern whether we're out of balance in this way or out of balance in that way. So that's the first factor of awakening. And then there are three energizing factors, investigation, energy, and rapture or joyful interest. And that's what I'll talk about tonight, joyful interest. And then three tranquilizing factors, tranquility, concentration, and uh, equanimity. And I won't be here for the next several weeks, but other people will be speaking on those topics. So when we just go back through these factors to remind ourselves, mindfulness is really the factor of mind that allows us to move beyond our habitual way of relating in the world. We're mostly relating based on our conditioning, how we are, have been taught to think and perceive, and we're pretty much caught by the, that habit, those habits rather. And mindfulness, in a sense, brings some freedom into the picture because we're actually, we're not free of our conditioning, but we're seeing conditioning as conditioning. And so in a sense, that's freedom. Like something could provoke anger in me, but if I see that it's provoking anger in me, there's some freedom not to act out the anger. So mindfulness is a step beyond our conditioning where we're still under the influence of the conditioning but all of a sudden there's an awareness, oh, well, this is how it is. My buttons are getting pushed, oh, this is how it is. The mind is dull, or this is how it is. And an investigation is, is bringing some continuity to the mindfulness. It's, we're using then the mindfulness to discern, oh, it's really unskillful if I act this out, or it's really skillful if I act this mind state out if I'm feeling really kind or really generous or grateful. And 
I see that mind state, well, I can see that it's a really wholesome mind state, that it's not harming, that it's conducive of ease or relaxation in the mind. Or if I see greed or anger, I can see that it's unskillful, that it's conducive of stress. So this is what investigation brings. We're now using the mindfulness, the clear seeing, to discern what's skillful and unskillful. And then we get energized. That's the next factor. Because all of a sudden we see there's this arena, this way of relating that really helps us get along better in life. So we're energized. We feel like making a commitment to paying attention, to being mindful, because it really matters. When we're not mindful, we're just acting out our habit energy. A lot of our habits are not so wholesome, so we keep making messes in our lives. But when we are mindful, we still have that unwholesome conditioning, you know, that habit ener those habit energies, but now we're seeing them. So then there's a possibility of not acting them out when they do arise, when they get triggered. And the energy is really this feeling, this quality in the mind that wants to commit because it matters. And the more we can act on this commitment, the more rapture or joyful interest arises. Because knowing that the mind relates skillfully and unskillfully at times, and committing to abandoning the unskillful and cultivating the skillful, we'll have more moments where the mind is in harmony or in alignment with the nature of things. And that that is the cause for joy, rapture, to arise. It's a wholeness. It arises out of a wholeness where the mind is not scattered, not caught, identified with unwholesome conditioning, unwholesome habits. doesn't mean there aren't unwholesome habit energies around. It just means the mind isn't identified and, and spinning because of that identification with unwholesome habits. There's a beautiful story from the suttas, the discourses of the Buddha and the other disciples or students of the Buddha. And this is the Buddha talking, and he is speaking. I forget exactly who he's talking to at this time, but probably some of his monks or nuns or lay supporters. And he talks about an important transition in his practice. Some of you might remember that. Uh, he left his life as a prince and a husband and a father to seek a deeper understanding so that he could be more useful. He didn't want to just do what everybody else was doing and end up without any wisdom. So he, he left to learn from whomever could teach him. And he studied with a number of teachers and eventually uh, started undertaking some very serious ascetic practices, fasting and a number of other practices, to the nth degree, it said. He really gave himself to those ascetic practices. But it was, they weren't delivering the kind of freedom or release for his heart that he was looking for. So he reflected about what was off. And in that time, he was reflecting about how to continue his practice. I forget if it was a memory or a dream but he, in a dream or just in a waking moment, he remembered a time when he was a young boy. And uh, I'll just read the, what the sutta says. From the, I think it's from the middle link discourses. 
I thought of the time when my father was working and I was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree, quite secluded from sensual desires, secluded from unwholesome things. I had entered upon an abode in the first meditation, which is accompanied by thinking and exploring with happiness and pleasure born of seclusion. I thought, might that be the way to enlightenment? Then following up that memory, there came the recognition that this was the way to enlightenment. The reason I like this particular passage, first it shows that the Buddha has a practitioner, you know, before his deep insight, that he was like us, you know, that he made mistakes or that he sought his awakening in one direction and then had to make a correction, which is what we have to do too. And it doesn't mean that it, it was a mistake, but just that we learned some things, but we haven't learned everything. So then we have to go, we have to make some changes in our life, and then we'll learn something over here. Then we make a change because we've learned everything we can learn here, and we go over there or someplace else. And so this shows a correction or a change in the Buddha's way of practicing. And the other thing I like about it is how organic or intuitive this path is and how the Buddha's correction didn't come from asking somebody else but just from re- reflecting about what wasn't working or what might work better and somehow from his own experience he had an insight oh maybe this is the way and the third thing I like about this passage is actually this insight that the Buddha had which is uh, an important principle in the way the Buddha taught which is ease or joy is a necessary factor for insight. So if we want to wake up, if we want to develop wisdom or deeper understanding in our life, learn how to be more skillful, it's really important that we cultivate, we find ways to cultivate wholesome joy in our lives, a stable joy in our lives. Because we all know this. I mean, this is really common sense. When we're overwhelmed, you know, by whatever, we could be overwhelmed by a painful relationship or overwhelmed by poverty or overwhelmed by worry about our kids or worry about the world. I mean, there's a lot of things to get overwhelmed by. (laughs) You know, bad health or a friend who has a serious medical condition. If we're overwhelmed by something... The mind's agitated and tight. And when our mind is agitated and tight or fearful or heavy, it's not clear. It's not easy to see things clearly. That that quality of being overwhelmed skews how we receive our experience. And because of that skewed perception, we respond or react to the world in a way that's not in alignment with the way things actually are because our perception is being skewed by the pain in our life, by being overwhelmed. So the great thing about wholesome joy is this part of the heart that's restless, that has a tendency towards restlessness and agitation. When joy is strong we begin to realize or experience that next factor, that mera over here in the corner we'll talk about 
next Wednesday and Sunday. She'll be subbing for me. And tranquility is really the ease that arises through the heart being content. And what allows the heart to be content or the mind to be content is the experience of joy. When we receive, when we know joy, the heart relaxes because the heart, the mind, doesn't need to go looking for something to be happy with. We're already feeling happy. So that agitated, restless part of the mind, tendency of the mind, it relaxes. And then that really supports clarity, moving to one-pointedness and then equanimity, that impartiality or balance of mind. So I want to talk a little bit about rapture. So one of the, again, this is, and I've been talking about this with the other factors that we've covered so far with mindfulness and investigation and energy, and now with rapture or joyful interest, it's surprising how potent it is just to know these seven factors. Just to know them intellectually as a list is really useful. And then once we know them as a list, then all of a sudden we'll just start noticing these factors present or not present in the mind. It'd be really great to know whether there's equanimity or not present in the mind. Or to know whether there's any quality of investigation or not. Like the opposite of investigation is when we just, it's like, we don't care. We just want to crawl into some hole. Could be a TV show, could be under our covers. But there's no quality of brightness or interest. And then no energy and no rapture, no joy that arises. Wynn and I spent the last weekend, or part of the last week in New Jersey with her mom and a lot of her nieces and nephews, young ones. And one of the things you notice with kids, healthy kids, is how easily it is for them to become thrilled. And rapture is a, the sort of weaker qualities of rapture are very, are very common experiences. It's not some far off experience that none of us know. It's just that basic feeling of being thrilled, enthusiastic. You know how kids can be for even small things, you know, going to swinging. Uh, yesterday morning before we left New Jersey, we went off to the park and it was, it was cold there. And with uh, two, uh, three of uh, Wynn's brother's children, and uh, <laughs> they're so cute. And they just wanted to swing over and over again. And they were thrilled each time. And you would think, you know, pushing them, it felt like that was enough. But no, it wasn't enough. <laughs> and, you know, just wanting their turn and wanting to go higher and just the thrill of moving like that for whatever reason. And we can, you know, we feel like as adults we sort of lose that, like it's not appropriate. And it's always fun to see adults who somehow maintain the ability to be thrilled, to be, uh, to feel alive with whatever it is that's happening. And we might think, you know, the reason that we don't get thrilled anymore, we don't have that quality of joy, is that our lives are so, you know, boring or nondescript. But it's much more about how we're relating. Because, you know, another child would have been terrified on the swing or cold or something like that. So it's not so much the actual condition or circumstance 
as it is how the mind is relating to that particular circumstance that matters. One thing that Michelle McDonald Smith, one of the teachers at IMS, says it's a she talks about a soft readiness. Mindfulness is a soft readiness or the heart of a child. And she talks about one of her teachers uh, saying that the, in the direction of practice, you know, we're moving towards greater and greater sensitivity. It's like when we swing on a swing, it's like well, we feel what, what interrupts the experience is this memory. Oh, I know what swinging's about. We don't give ourselves completely. We don't open completely to the experience of just moving through space like that. We're in our thoughts about swimming. Or even here at Common Ground, you know, instead of really being here in a room packed with people, hearing these teachings from the Buddha, you know, that men and women have benefited from for hundreds of years, you know, we could feel thrilled to be here. But instead, it's like another Sunday night at Common Ground. Or, I mean, I'm not saying that's how it is for you, but it might be that way for some people. But other people, maybe if this is your first time here, you might feel like thrilled. I remember when I first heard these teachings or connected with some communities that did this practice, I felt thrilled. I felt like, oh, wow, this is great. This is so neat there's a place like this. So maybe you feel that way. And the question is, what makes one person feel bored, one mind is bored, and another's thrilled? It's like becoming a beginner again, or a new person, seeing things with, like with new eyes, or as if for the first time. And this one teacher of Michelle McDonald Smith said that we become as sensitive as an eyeball. Isn't that an interesting way to describe it? Because that's how it is. That's how children are sometimes. They're so sensitive to what they're doing. It's like the tower that's being built or the drawing that's being drawn. They're so sensitive to their experience. And we get dulled because we think we know. That's why Krishnamurti wrote that book. He's a well-known spiritual teacher from the last century. And he wrote this book, um, Freedom from the Known. It's like we have to break beyond what we know, what we think we know, break beyond our concepts. This is from Ayakema, a Buddhist nun, a German woman. She wrote in one of her books, Without joy, there is not concentration. We hardly ever hear this mentioned, though the Buddha referred to it often. He says that we can only meditate if we feel comfortable in body and mind, and if we can only, and we can only concentrate if the mind is joyful. If we really know why we are practicing and truly appreciate our own efforts, that understanding alone brings joy. So just to, uh, this is really comes out of investigation. What I said about investigation, simply being mindful in our lives, we, for moments at a time, we begin to investigate the nature of our mind, the nature of our heart, and we see the potential for release, for relief. Just by noticing, just by paying attention to our heart and mind, because we begin to see how much suffering, how much stress is created 
by the way we relate to experience. And then we begin to discover, well, if we don't relate that way, how much freedom is possible? How much relief or release is possible? And so just reflecting on that, we can get thrilled. We can be joyful, like, wow, there's a path. There's something to cultivate here. There's a nice passage in this Vipassana classic, Vipassana or Insight Meditation classic. It's written by Jack Kornfield and Joseph Goldstein. It's called Seeking the Heart of Wisdom, the Path of Insight Meditation. This is an Insight Meditation Center or Vipassana Center. And they have a chapter on the seven factors of awakening. And in the section on rapture, Jack Hartfield writes, he wrote this chapter, he writes, the quality of rapture is an ease and openness of mind that receives with interest every kind of circumstance. It asks, what do I have to learn from this new experience? Or says, wow, this is pretty intense, isn't it? To be in touch with this factor brings a capacity to look at our life with a playful yet caring interest and to say in difficulty, even this is something I can work with. This quality of openness is based on being willing to expand and see things from a larger perspective. At times we become weighed down with our likes and dislikes and identification. Our melodramas seem very solid and real and important. This quality of lightheartedness has been described as controlled folly by Don Juan. It is like looking at our small life on this earth from a great distance and from a great length of time. It is the recognition that all created things pass and what matters is not how much we collect or what we make or do, but how we live, how we live this short dance and how well we learn to love. Let us learn to live wise, wisely, even though life passes like a flash of summer lightning in a dream. So one way to learn about all of these factors is not so much, in part, is to reflect on what mindfulness is as an experience in your mind and heart, or what interest or investigation is as an experience, or energy is, or rapture is, but also to reflect on what the opposite is, like what's the opposite of joy, feeling that joyful interest, that aliveness, that that very profound kind of sensitivity that Michelle McDonald Smith was talking about. Right? Where life feels like drudgery and it's heavy and there's sort of an assumption in the mind that it's too much or it doesn't matter or it's not important. And in a way we're justifying shutting down or being insensitive that somehow that feels like the appropriate way to relate or the appropriate strategy. I'm sure this sounds familiar. It should sound. I mean, for most of us, we visit this place, I'm assuming, relatively often. You know, maybe every day, maybe for periods of time quite, you know, it's a more pervasive mind state, this lack of joy. 
you know, you could call it depression, or just resignation, feeling of helplessness. So then, when we when we understand that, then we learn we can learn to be sensitive to when that's not there, because one of the unfortunate things about our minds is that when when our mind is relatively in balance, relatively healthy, we tend to feel relatively good, so we stop paying attention. It's like we only think we should pay attention when things are difficult, when we're feeling depressed, when things are overwhelming for us. But we actually want to notice, even if it's quite subtle or just in an infancy form, we want to notice these wholesome qualities in the mind. We want to become fluent with the seven factors. Or whatever list you want to use, this is a good one. To get fluent, so we very quickly recognize the wholesome qualities that are present. Because what you'll find, I think, is that noticing joy is the cause for more joy. Noticing the quality of investigation strengthens the quality of investigation. Noticing that the, uh, when mindfulness is present, is the cause for mindfulness to be present in the next moment. Noticing tranquility deepens the tranquility. When we pay attention to wholesome states, they tend to be strengthened. When we pay attention to unwholesome states, they tend to fall apart. This seems to be a basic principle that we can count on. Again, in this talk Michelle McDonald-Smith gave about rapture and joy, she talks, she's a, she's a really good example. I think uh, Venerable Jyoti Palo knows uh, Michelle McDonald-Smith because he, before he became a monk, he was on staff at IMS. And she has a childlike quality about her. And one story she tells, she lives on Hawaii, and she talks about going to the Big Island and seeing the volcanoes for the first time. And, you know, it's just like a child. But, just uh, being amazed by the volcano and feeling just that sensitivity, like really being there. And I think the place where she visited, the volcano was active. So I don't know if it was, I mean, it wasn't obviously a big explosion, but it was spewing something. And uh, so she was there watching it from a distance and, and with that childlike interest and uh, full presence and just really had a deep insight about how like this anger in her was just like that volcano like the earth has this very natural violent activity you know powerful hot unpredictable and that sounded a lot like her tendency towards anger and just to learn from that kind of sensitivity being sensitive we can heal separation because separation is somehow we think that what's happening here is apart from everything else is different from everything else there's me and then there's all of you or the whole world but what we want to see is that what's here is there what's there is here and it makes life it makes the quality the pain of separation fall away so there's, we have these, uh, we have this real incentive to cultivate these seven factors and to begin to discover what joy does, like how it opens the door to insight. 
when we're sensitive, when we're interested, when we're really committed to the present moment, committed to, to being receptive, to being open to the present moment, not only will we receive joy right then, but we'll have insight that will really change our understanding and change our lives and support others too. So one of the things to pay attention to in terms of understanding the opposite is the presence of doubt. Doubt really undermines the development of the seven factors. Somehow believing that I, given my circumstances or given the way my mind is, given who I am, this isn't available to me. Insight isn't available to me. Real joy isn't available. I mean, my God, this is my life. How could I be joyful? So we, in a sense, because of our beliefs, we shut the door to joy, thinking that, that joy only comes to people who don't have these circumstances in their lives. So that's a, that's a good question for us to reflect on right now. What actually is in the way of joy? What is in the way of joy? One of the things I've discovered in my practice, having practiced for a while now and been pretty regular and going on retreats and sitting every day for well, 25 or 26 years now, is that when I have a lot of suffering or a lot of pain, emotional pain, physical pain, mental pain, not always, but often, I, I, can, uh, I can remember to give myself fully to that experience. And the amazing thing, one of the most amazing things, as an ordinary practitioner, one of the most amazing things is to see how, through the process of mindfulness and igniting these factors that we've been talking about, the factors of awakening, the mind can transmute suffering to joy, to freedom. So if we open to knee pain, back pain, with a balanced mind, fully committed to be with that, fearlessly open to the back pain, their joy will arise. Not because back pain is joyful, but because relating to back pain skillfully is a cause for joy. The back pain is still back pain. So it, it, we can do this with a painful memory or painful emotion. It doesn't mean that you haven't been really hurt because somebody you love died or somebody you love left you. But if we relate to that emotion skillfully, fully committed to being open, to feeling what we're feeling, to investigating, rapture will arise, joy will arise. But we have to know how to recognize it, know what the characteristics of rapture or joy are. So the Pali word is pity. And pity can arise not only in wholesome ways, but also can arise in neutral and unwholesome times. You know, a lot of people are addicted to the thrill of doing dangerous things. 
and their minds, in a sense, become whole. They're wholly there in their robbery or whatever they're doing, and they feel thrilled. They get a rush. I remember, who was it that famous actress was caught shoplifting? Winona Ryder, right. Yeah, and so, you know, I'm assuming she didn't need the money. But why did she do it? Well, I don't know. I mean, I haven't read any of the articles. I'm sure there are a number. <laughs> but my guess is that there was some thrill. That somehow, like if, if you know, now I'm just speculating, but if somebody's life feels like they don't have meaning or don't know what their life is about, well, what we tend to do is want to distract yourself with some joy. So we do something that gives us some temporary joy. And then after a while, that doesn't give us joy anymore. So we have to find something else to do. And all you have to do is sort of look at what people do with their lives to see how diverse humans seek joy. And what the Buddha remembered as a little boy under that rose apple tree is that he didn't need to do anything to connect with this wholesome joy. Because he was sitting there, and maybe it was a pleasant experience, his mind collected, it became whole in that experience. There was, you know, those seven factors came into being. There was mindfulness, there was interest, there was energy, there was joy, there was tranquility and concentration, one-pointedness and equanimity. <clears throat> and it all came together. There's a little boy. He remembered he didn't need to get something. But he didn't need to be afraid of the world either. And so this is how we have to relate. So if we keep thinking that, oh, I can't experience joy here because it's too crowded at Common Ground. Or, you know, I, I only do it. Steve Armstrong and Kamala Masters sent us a bunch of postcards from their beautiful retreat on Maui in April. If you're interested, there's the postcards are on the bench in the entranceway. And some people might think I have to go to Maui and do a mindfulness insight meditation retreat on Maui in order to experience these states that the Buddha talks about. But we will keep postponing our practice if we think that. Because the, what the Buddha taught is that we can work with the conditions that we face right now. Some of us did a mindful walk last night. We have our full moon peace walk on the full moon nights. And so last night, we took a walk out to the river and sat in Brackett Park for about 15 minutes and walked back. And it's a simple activity, just walking. You know, we walk in a line. We're not talking with each other. And if, if the mind completely gives itself to the walking experience, just to the simplicity of lifting and moving, it's joyful to be walking. Even on a cold night, it's joyful. And it's not that walking is itself so special. But if we relate to it completely, fully, it becomes a beautiful, wholesome, joyful experience. Joseph says in another book, not this one that I quoted before, Rapture is a spaciousness in the mind born of detachment or non-attachment, free of grasping or clinging or identified involvement. So it's both the sensitivity of an eyeball, as Michelle McDonald Smith said, but also with the wisdom of non-attachment. 
So we're fully there in the moment, in the walking or whatever it is, but we're not attached. We're not trying to look like a mindful walker as we're walking, you know, or wanting to look better than the guy in front of us or whatever. We're fully present but without attachment, without any agenda or expectation. So the sensitivity without the identification or attachment. So I want to end by just covering um, several hundred years after the time of the Buddha, a manual of Buddhist meditation was written by Buddha Gosa. Um, and he kind of systematized a lot of the Buddhist concepts that the Buddha used in his teachings. And so he came up with five, he described different types of rapture. So the first kind is called lesser rapture, which arises after the hindrances have been kept at bay for sufficient time. And here this is like chills and thrills of pleasure is one of the ways that it's described, sometimes goosebumps. So we probably remember times when rapture arose. Like even if we get frightened, rapture arises, the mind becomes very interested, right? It, it forgets all its distractions. It's no longer scattered. And we're really there. We feel very alive. And especially if you notice after you see that there's nothing to be afraid of, like something goes bump in the night, for a few seconds you might be afraid, and then you remember, oh, it's just a cat. But the, the rapture will still be there momentarily. So you can notice just that heightened sensitivity, that full presence, and just the energy, the quality of brightness joy in the mind. Now this can be cultivated with something as simple as a being present with the breath. If you can bring your attention, if you can be holy with your breath like you are when you get frightened, you will feel that same kind of energy building. And the, the beginning stages of rapture is like that. It's like a thrill or a, a kind of a tingling or aliveness. Now I'm often describing these in terms of the physical sensations, but rapture is a mind state. It's a joyful interest or a wholeness in the mind, but it has physical repercussions, so generally we'll notice it as physical sensations. The second is called momentary rapture, so this is a little bit more intense, and it can come in a real strong flash or uh, like a big burst. I'm going to read what another teacher uh, wrote about this. It appears like a flash of lightning. You experience this kind of pity or rapture in your body like a flash of lightning once in a while. You feel very good and there is coolness in your body. Coolness is a welcome quality in the East where the climate is most hot, mostly hot. But the coolness he's talking about is when there's that flash of rapture. It's like the mind, uh, it's like all the sort of ordinary preoccupations with the mind temporarily fall away. It's like Buddha, they, you always see it in these thrillers where somebody uh, does an electronic impulse, you know, and all the electronic gadgets go blank for a while, shut down. It's a little bit like that. It's like, there's a strong jolt of joy, and all of the preoccupations of the mind just stop. They're, in a sense, stunned 
for a while, and the mind becomes very quiet. And this quietness in Buddhism, we often call this a coolness in the heart, a coolness in the mind, the non-agitation of the mind. That it's not going out seeking some entertainment, like thinking about this thought or worrying about that or planning this or wondering. It's just content to be quiet. And that's like a coolness. And then the next is called uplifting or exhilarating rapture. Though this comes with greater degrees of concentration or continuity of mindfulness. And this other teacher calls it wave-like pity or rapture. This kind of rapture comes over your, over your body again and again like waves on a seashore. And one of the qualities here is, a, uh, is the contentment that ar arises when there's a wave of joy and another wave of joy and another wave of joy. The heart or mind becomes really content, like not wanting to go anywhere. You can see how easily this slides into tranquility. And there's also uh, uplifting, exhilarating rapture, where you feel very light. You might think you're floating. And pervasive rapture, the strongest of all, which uh, you feel everywhere you can look, you feel it. It's like champagne bubbles everywhere. So it's like the whole mind-body system feels very light and, light, uh, light and alive and pleasant. It's like you can't find unpleasantness anywhere. It's just like it doesn't exist. Wherever you turn your mind, whatever you perceive is pleasant. So those are the classic categories. But I think the, the thing to look for in our own experience is just first to learn to recognize that even if you think you're a miserable human being, joy does arise at times. And we need to learn to see it, even if it's just in a, a very minor state. And you might find that being open, being mindful of joy, is a really wonderful object to collect the attention around. So if there are some experiences in your life that are pleasant and wholesome, so you want to, it's better to work with experiences where you're not going to be cultivating attachment, like after a busy day, you come home and you sit down in a comfortable chair. Just notice the feeling of relaxation. That's a pleasant feeling. The mind likes to pay attention to pleasant sensations. So use that pleasant sensation of resting to collect and notice joy. Or when you're seeing a friend. You know, and you're just sitting there. Maybe you don't have to talk, or maybe you're just listening. Just maybe notice if there's joy. Just the joy that arises when you give yourself completely to an experience. And the thing about pleasant experiences is we're happy to give ourselves to those experiences. We're happy to be pre uh, fully present there. But then we can begin to practice with neutral experience, being fully present with neutral experience, just like we would if it were a really pleasant experience. And then practice with unpleasant experience. So that's why, like in the instructions when we're sitting, you know, we use something neutral like the sensations of the breath in the body to cultivate this quality of attention.
But if something really pleasant arises or something really unpleasant arises, well, then we work with that. So we don't try to stick with the breath if something strongly predominant arises, because that can create tension in the mind. We give ourselves to whatever it is that's strongly predominant, and we practice being fully present and experience that joy that the Buddha talked about, or rapture. So I'll end with this quote from Sharon Salzberg's well-known book, Loving Kindness, The Revolutionary Art of Happiness. And near the beginning of that book, where she's talking about the quality of love, she has one of my favorite quotes. She says, Great fullness of being, which we experience as happiness, can also be described as love. To be undivided and unfragmented, to be completely present, is to love. To pay attention is to love. And I think she's really pointing to this particular quality in practice that we refer to as titti or joy or rapture. So I'll leave it here. This is a good time if you have any questions about the talk tonight or if you have experiences from your own practice that you'd like to share with the group, things you've learned about this quality of joyful interest or what you feel is in the way that you'd like to bring up. Edwin. Uh, while you were talking, I was having this inner debate, uh, like, uh, and uh, you touched on a lot of these points. So, but you know, the, the solution would be to be fully present with what's happening and, and pay attention to it. And yet, there is this other voice that's 